Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome two special guests to this podcast. These scientists are involved in ophthalmology and regenerative medicine. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Adam Feinberg. Dr. Feinberg is with Carnegie Mellon University in the Biomedical Engineering and Material Science and Engineering programs. And also, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Rochelle Plachesco. Dr. Plachesco is a postdoctoral fellow in the Otero program at the Fox Center for Vision Restoration. Previous podcasts have introduced the Fox Center, and we're going to focus this particular discussion on some very interesting studies that relates to the development of basement membranes for the regeneration of corneal epithelium. Dr. Feinberg and Dr. Plachesco, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thanks. Thank you. Perhaps the place to start this discussion is to share with our audience a bit of the problem that you're working on, and then we can talk about the approach that you're using. Sure. I'll give you a general overview, and maybe Rochelle can give you some specifics. We're generally interested in how you can regenerate tissues and restore function, kind of classic tissue engineering problems. In the cornea, we're looking at the endothelium. It's a monolayer of cells that lines the inner surface of the cornea and really maintains hydration and nutrient transport for all the other tissues in the cornea. And interestingly, this is a non-proliferative tissue, so you're pretty much born with all the cells you're ever going to have in this tissue, and they're kind of arrested in their cell cycle. So as they die over time, there's less of them, they spread out, and they try to maintain the function of this tissue with less cells, and eventually that can give out and lead to a disease state where the cornea becomes cloudy. As Dr. Feinberg mentioned, the cells are basically non-proliferative, so one of the biggest problems that we encounter is when you isolate these cells and try to engineer corneal endothelium, the cells will not grow in vitro, and so we needed to really find a way to expand these cells. So part of our project has been working on trying to increase the expansion of the corneal endothelial cells, and then the second part of the project is really trying to engineer a basement membrane mimic to engineer corneoendothelium. So the corneoendothelial cells sit on decimase membrane in vivo, and it's a membrane that consists of collagen 8, collagen 4, and laminin. And so we're really trying a bottom-up approach to engineer membrane mimic to engineer the corneoendothelium. So let's step back for just a moment, perhaps the people in the audience who aren't as familiar with the structure of the eye. And this dying of cells from the corneal epithelium, what is the term for the affliction that people have from that? There's a variety. There's Fuchs dystrophy is a disease of the corneal endothelium that causes cell death. A lot of times injury to the eye will cause the cell death to the endothelium. Overexposure to UV rays or chemical burns and injuries can also damage or kill these cells. Okay, and how is it treated now? Currently, they use either a full cornea transplant called the penetrating keratoplasty or new recent surgical techniques for a destamase membrane endothelial keratoplasty where they just transfer the endothelial layer is used. But besides transplant from a donor cornea, there are no other treatments at this time. There are a few totally synthetic cornea replacements, but these have very poor outcomes. You know, typically they last less than a year. So corneal transplant, either of just the endothelium or of the entire cornea, is really the standard of care. 
So your strategy and your approach with this research program is to be able to regenerate these cells as opposed to have to do a transplant from a cadaver. Yeah, and so there's a couple just general problems with transplant. I mean, I believe the uh, five-year failure rate is 50%, and that is for full penetrating keratoplasty, so the entire cornea. These newer approaches that use just the endothelium are actually relatively new, and I'm not even sure how much five-year data there is on that technique. Presumably, it should be a little bit better. And corneas are pretty available in the U.S. There's enough for transplant to meet need. However, that really doesn't occur anywhere else in the world. Demand outstrips uh, available supply, and that's really one of the major issues. So this is a very exciting alternative that you've begun to investigate, and I suspect that we should say to our listeners that this is the beginnings of a research study, and so in terms of clinical availability, we're looking at somewhere downstream for this, assuming that you're successful. Yeah, that's correct. My lab has actually only been functioning for about one year at this point, and that's when Rochelle started. So this is all brand new. We've actually made, I think, pretty exciting progress in that time period, and we're charging ahead. Very good. So you're using a tissue engineering approach to accomplish your objective, and we've had other guests on this podcast who have talked about tissue engineering Can you tell us a little bit about your approach and perhaps make a contrast between what you're studying and developing as opposed to what I'll call the traditional tissue engineering approach? We look at what we need to do in terms of making a scaffold, in terms of information. How do we provide the cells with a a context that they understand and then can behave appropriately, typically the way they might behave in vivo? And so we focus really on three main aspects, the mechanical environment, the chemical or compositional environment, and then the kind of nano-microscale structure of that to really mimic what we see in extracellular matrix. So the project is really split into two parts. One is this idea of how do we expand endothelial cells and get enough of them to actually be useful for tissue engineering something. And then the second part is actually how do we actually make the endothelium. And so for the first part, we're actually just trying to make modified Petri dishes We modify mechanical properties of the surface and the chemical composition, so the kinds of proteins that we absorb on them. And this has really been spawned out of the recent work by Dennis Disher at Penn or Yuli Wang, who's also at Carnegie Mellon now, on how you can use substrate stiffness to modulate cell response. And so we're using that approach to expand cells. We did something a little bit different where we created a high-content screen So we can screen a large variety of substrate stiffnesses and protein coatings to find the optimal condition for growing our cells. So that kind of allowed us to really, I think, take the leap and get the result that Rochelle will talk about later, where we can really substantially expand these endothelial cells. The second part is how we actually make the endothelium, and now we're trying to actually make basement membranes. So there's been a lot of recent work by uh, Steve Badalak here, Uh, at the McGowan Institute, as well as Doris Taylor at Minnesota on decellularizing heart, or Laura Nicholson at Yale, decellularizing lungs, showing that as you remove cells and leave an extracellular matrix behind, cells will adhere and regrow a tissue almost as if they know where to go and what to do based on the composition and structure of this protein matrix. It's actually difficult to build one of these matrices from the bottom up, from the actual proteins, and rebuild the structure. And that's really the other key thing we're working on. How do you do bottom-up engineering of the matrix? 
So to do that, we're mimicking the way cells actually assemble proteins into fibrils. They do this on their cell surface. They use integrins and other kinds of protein receptors on their surface to build fibrils, and then they actually release it from their surface. So we've developed a kind of a new type of fabrication technology. We call it surface-initiated assembly. And we can actually build protein fibrils on a surface very similar to the way cells do. And then we can also release that off of that surface and then use that directly for growing cells on, either in two dimensions or three dimensions. And that's kind of the unique take we have on this tissue engineering problem, this bottom-up assembly. So this is a bit of a digression, but while you've introduced this concept, uh, I assume it's applicable to many other potential therapies as well. Yeah, that's correct. Our lab actually works in two main areas, and these are actually kind of disconnected, but they really allow us to maximize the types of applications we can pursue. So one is the ophthalmology applications, specifically the cornea. The other is cardiac tissue engineering. So we go from essentially the least vascularized tissue, which is the cornea, to the most vascularized tissue in the body, which is the heart. And I have a substantial background in cardiac tissue engineering from my postdoc years, and we're basically applying this technology in both areas, looking to overcome some different problems where the heart is more of an issue of vascularization, and we don't have that issue in the cornea. It's a nice kind of marriage of two different applications that leverage the same core technology set. Very interesting. So now we should perhaps go back to the ocular application. And Dr. Plachesco, I understand you can explain or elaborate a bit on your cell expansion technique. Yes. So as Adam mentioned, we did a high content screen of a lot of different substrate stiffnesses and protein coatings to try to determine what the best condition to grow these endothelial cells in. Tissue culture plastic is much, much stiffer than the native environment of these corneoendothelial cells. And so we sort of hypothesized that if we cultured those cells on a substrate that was more similar to their actual native environment, we might be able to increase their in vitro expansion. And so we developed a biomimetic substrate that had a stiffness that matches that of Decimase membrane, their native environment, and a collagen 4 protein coating. And we were able to increase the expansion of these cells by 3,000-fold, whereas on normal tissue culture polystyrene, you can increase the expansion maybe 138-fold. So we were really able to increase the amount of cells that we were able to obtain with our biomimetic substrate. So this sounds like a major advance, and again, this is a piece of work in progress, but uh, what are the next steps in terms of uh, moving forward? I think our next steps right now, we're going to focus on um, a lot of our work was done with bovine endothelial cells. So we're going to use our techniques with human endothelial cells to confirm that the expansion is also increased in those. And then from that, we're going to move into actually engineering these basement membranes. We've been working on that at the same time, but the expansion experiment sort of took the front. So as this work progresses and matures, I think about the ultimate day when it would be available clinically, or at least for clinical assessment. And the question that comes to my mind is, how does a surgeon implant this new structure that you have? you have to remove the cornea? And Actually, the corneoendothelial mimic that we're looking to tissue engineer would be able to be used in a DMEC procedure, the endothelial keratoplasty that I mentioned earlier. So the same surgical techniques that are used today where they don't need to remove the cornea, they just need to go in and remove the endothelial layer would be applicable to the construct that we're working on. 
Yeah, that's, I think, one of the beauties of this technique. I mean, it just so happens there's new surgical techniques that will remove this endothelial layer from a cadaver cornea and just implant that. What we're tissue engineering is almost the same exact thing. And so there's actually existing surgical techniques that implant almost an identical construct in terms of cell composition and handling characteristics. It's just we're making ours from scratch, if you will, whereas the ones currently being used are removed from a cadaver cornea. So I think in terms of how you get a tissue engineered construct in, it's kind of unique from that standpoint. It's very unique, and uh, I have to congratulate you on your innovation and the progress you've made to date. So, Dr. Feinberg, you mentioned that you have some other interesting activities relating to cardiac studies. Perhaps you could just briefly introduce that to our audience. Sure. So, heart disease is the number one killer of Americans, most first-world countries, and myocardial infarction is a major part of the heart. It's starved the blood. It's what happens during a heart attack, and that heart tissue dies, and it can't regenerate. Very similar in some ways to the endothelium. Your cardiac myocyte is non-proliferative, meaning you're essentially born with more or less all you'll ever have, and you need more heart muscle cells to fix this dead heart muscle tissue. So there's been a ton of progress recently in stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes. These induce pluripotent stem cells where anyone can take an adult human cell, like a skin cell, turn it into a cell like an embryonic stem cell, and then differentiate that to a cardiomyocyte has been in the popular press. It's all over the scientific literature and is really an exciting opportunity. Now, the problem that you really don't hear discussed much is the simple fact that when you take an embryonic stem cell or, or an induced pluripotent stem cell and you differentiate it into a cardiomyocyte, which is relatively easy, that cardiomyocyte is actually embryonic in phenotype. And it's very difficult to make it form muscle tissue. So they can get the cell, but how do you make the tissue? So going back to this idea that we can bottom-up engineer the extracellular matrix, we have this technology what we're trying to do is think about the simple fact that human cardiac muscle is only formed during embryonic development. So there's a context of the matrix that the cells are in during this period that's different than the adult heart. So we are trying to understand how the extracellular matrix is structured during actual heart development in the human and then engineering a mimetic substrate so that we can then put on these embryonic-derived cardiomyocytes from a stem cell, put them into a context they understand so they'll reform muscle tissue. Once we form that muscle tissue, we can then mature it, if you will, in a bioreactor or in vitro to make it more like adult myocardium. So then it would be relevant for either therapeutic implantation to repair a muscle defect or even just as a benchtop system for understanding how different kinds of drugs interact with cardiac muscles since cardiac toxicity is one of the major problems you have with most drugs either fail to come to market or even some that actually do come to market and they learn later that there's cardiac toxicity associated with that. And so what we're doing is pretty simple at this stage. You know, my lab is relatively new, but we're using the embryonic chick as a model system to understand how the matrix is structured during cardiac development. And we're building uh, mimetic substrates with this bottom-up engineering technique of the extracellular matrix. And growing cardiac muscle in these systems, trying to understand what's the optimum matrix that will help guide human-induced pluripotent stem cells into a cardiomyocyte and then from a cardiomyocyte into an actual cardiac muscle tissue. Certainly very pioneering research and I uh, should note to our listeners also very fundamental at this point in terms of where it might have some clinical applicability, but I congratulate you on what you're doing. 
Well, I'd like to thank both of our guests for uh, coming and sharing uh, some very pioneering and promising studies. In terms of some future references, Dr. Feinberg has a, a website at his home institution, Carnegie Mellon University. We'll put the link to that on the podcast site. And also the work of Dr. Feinberg, Dr. Fundenberg, and Dr. Plachesco with the Fox Center that will post that website as well. As we conclude this podcast, I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. Remind our listeners that, that we welcome suggestions in terms of topics. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And until we meet again in two weeks, thank you for listening. <laughs>